I want to start with a question or ask you a question about somebody else asking you a question. Someone were to come up to you and just say simply, what is Christianity? What's it mean to be a Christian? What's, what's Christianity? I find that oftentimes the most simple questions can become the most difficult to answer, where you're like, that's such an easy question, and okay, we'll start answering it. And you can find yourself getting tongue-tied. I think two ways that people would often try to define it off the top of their heads, one would be that, well, well it's a way of life. You, you go to church, and you seek to be a moral person, and certainly in your family and in your neighborhood, and help people in your community. You might have people who would go the other way and say, well, Christianity is a set of doctrine. You have all these beliefs that you have to agree to, that you have to claim. It's all about what you believe. And, and both of those would be um, uh, correct but insufficient in and of themselves. If you were to say it's a way of life or it's a set of beliefs, it wouldn't be enough. It has to be both. That Christianity is not merely a set of beliefs that you give this a mental assent to and you sign a card and you say, I'm in on that. And it's a set of beliefs that has to lead to a way of life, has to shape a way of life. It is this story, this single story of how God is reconciling all things to himself, all things that have been broken, and he's restoring, and he's redeeming, he's doing it through his son Jesus. And then our story, little s, is wrapped up in his story, big S. This is Christianity, a set of beliefs that leads to a way of life. So if you could ask that this week, there you go. But there is a, uh, a man named, and I'm probably not saying this right, but um, Athagonorus, and he was one of the first apologists in the early church. He lived in the second century, so only about 100 years after Paul was writing this letter to the Philippians that we're working through, and he uh, kind of put it upon himself to give a defense of the gospel to the emperor of Rome. Uh, because Christians at this time, the second century, were getting all kinds of false accusations thrown against them of some pretty awful things. There was three primary accusations against the church in the second century. One is that they were cannibals. Second, that they engaged in insensuous orgies. And third, believe it or not, that they were atheists because they did not adhere to the Roman culture gods. And so Athagonorus wrote this defense against these things called Embassy um, of Christians, and it's a great book and recommend you reading it. It's actually a pretty quick read. And he beautifully and compassionately writes uh, and confronts these baseless accusations, but his ultimate defense is, is really two-toned. He says, listen to what we believe and then watch how we live. And both are needed. That Christianity and the spread of it and how it really took over the world, starting in that Roman Empire, it was not just based on doctrine. It was based on doctrine that shaped the lives of those in the church that served as a witness. And that remains true today, just like it did in the second century and certainly in the first century with Paul, that this world around us will watch how we live far long before they will listen to what we say. It was true then, it was true now. It's a set of belief, you see. It's really important. That leads to a way of life. It's really important. Faith that leads to works. 
And we're going to see that in our passage this morning in Philippians. Um, If you were here with us last week, we ended last week with verse 11 of chapter 2, which was um, the really kind of theological jewel of this whole letter. It was the Jesus Creed, verses 5 through 11. Um, Very vital verses in your Bible about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what Jesus is currently doing. And it's all in those little verses that he is God that he humbled himself and died on a cross for our sin, and that he was exalted and is now currently ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And belief in those truths is vital. It's important. We're going to proclaim that week after week after week who Jesus is, what he's done. It's really important. But now Paul is going to take those verses and springboard off of them to show that these things, rightly believed, they're going to lead to a certain way of life. What's that way of life? That's what we're seeing this morning. So here's our outline. It's kind of a three-part outline. Hang with me. We got one command this morning. We got three ways to do it, and then three human examples to follow. Okay? So let's start Philippians 2 with the first Uh, Two verses of our passage, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you always have obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The classic interpretation technique that I speak of often, whenever you're studying a passage on your own and you see the word therefore, ask yourself, what's the therefore? Therefore. And in this case, the therefore is therefore the reason of following up this masterful description of Jesus, of who he is, of what he's done, of what he's currently doing. Therefore, when you believe that, it will flow into obedience and this kind of grace-fueled effort on our part. And this whole passage hinges on this single command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I think every command in Scripture ought to be paid attention to, but this one is especially important to grasp because it can so easily be misunderstood, and when you misunderstand something, you will misapply something. And taken in isolation, this phrase, work out your own salvation, you could take that to mean and try to make the case just by itself, that means that salvation and perseverance, that's on you. You work it out. You get saved based upon how well you live. You live the good life, and if it's good enough by the end, we'll all find out on that day, were you good enough? And if you're good enough, you're saved. Not good enough, not saved. Is that what Paul is saying? No. (laughs) I hope when you hear that, there's a thunderous no way happening. Lights and bells going in your brain. No, no way. That Christianity is not a self-help technique where you can figure out enough tricks and life hacks in order to be saved. That this command, work out your own salvation, is attached to the truth that Jesus has come and saved us. He condescended. He humbled himself on the cross. 
and died the death that we deserved. And when he was raised from the dead and we believe in him, we put our trust and faith in him, that we are saved, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And then from there, now we live. Salvation is not the end of the road. It's very much the beginning of the road. Um, there's a passage in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. It's actually only a couple pages behind Philippians in your Bibles, where Paul says this, I think, even more clearly up on the screen. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One of, if not the most important relationships to understand in Christianity, especially in our area, I would say, is the relationship between salvation and works, good works. Hear closely, we are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Crucial to understand that Paul saying, work out your own salvation, is a command that we can follow. You know why? Because we are already saved if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. So work out your salvation because you have salvation in Christ. And so a word that I find myself interpersonally trying to share with people, certainly in the realm of preaching, I want to say as clearly as I can, I pray that I'm clear here, that if you believe that your life and salvation is going to be wrapped up in whether or not you're good enough, brother, sister, you're mistaken. The good news is far better than that. The good news that we cannot save ourselves, which is why Jesus had to come in the first place. If you could be good enough, Jesus didn't have to come. Jesus came and died on the cross because we couldn't be good enough. And so when we repent of our sin and we trust in him, we're saying, I can't do this on my own. And I put my faith in Christ who stood in my place. And the works in our lives will come out of that. I think, you know, if that does sound confusing, why is he saying work out your own salvation? It might be easier to grasp than we initially think. And especially in our world and the way we use language, um, if you think about the parallel of working out a physical body, okay, when we consider the phrase working out, do you work out? Hey, do you work out? I work out. You work out? What, what are we asking? What are we talking? Working out is talking about physically strengthening your body through exercise. There's all these ways you can do it. You could swim, you could run, you could walk, you could jump, you could play games, you could do yoga. I'm not the kind of person who thinks yoga is the devil, just we'll talk about it after. You can do yoga. It's a good workout. I'm terrible at it. Um, You can lift weights. You can go hike a mountain. There's a lot of ways to work out. But when somebody asks you, hey, do you even work out? What they're asking is, do you strengthen the body that you already have? In other words, you cannot work out your body if you don't have a body to begin with. And in the same way, you cannot work out your salvation without already having salvation. Since this is true, since you were saved in Christ, work it out. Strengthen it. The the theological word here is sanctification. 
the process of becoming morally righteous, the process of becoming spiritually stronger in the way we think and we speak and we act. And so you have justification, that we are saved by grace in Christ alone, fully justified, and we have sanctification, where we are grown in grace to look like Christ. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, don't let those words throw you off, right? This is, this is reverent fear. This is in response to seeing Christ high and lifted up. Verse 11, exalted on the throne, ruling and reigning. That when you see that, when God opens your eyes to that, that gives an awe in you and a desire and a motivation to work it out, to live it out. Don't let this faith stay isolated. Live it out. Strengthen your faith. Here's the best part, is verse 13. He says, for, that's a ground clause word, right? He's about to tell you why you can do this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's the best kept secret in the Christian faith. It's not up to you. It's not sink or swim. It's not, okay, I died on the cross for you. I gave the down payment of that house. Now the monthly mortgage updates, that's on you. Hope you make it. We'll see at the end. No, it's not Christianity. I think many of us live that way. And it's a terrible way to try and live a Christian life. But we are sanctified in the same way that we are justified. By grace. For... God works in you through his Holy Spirit to bring us to maturity to chapter 1, verse 6, the one you got tattooed on a few weeks ago on your bodies. Complete the good work he began in us. I am sure of this. How can he say that? Why? It's by grace. God works in you. So is living faithfully and living courageously in the Christian life, is that our responsibility? Yes. Does God promise to work in us and through us in that journey? Yes. To explain this better than I can and in a single line, there's an author, theologian, J.I. Packer. He writes it this way. Quote, God's method of sanctification is neither activism, which is self-reliant activity, nor apathy, God-reliant passivity, but God-dependent effort. I should have just said that and saved us all five minutes. <laughs> Packer, you should read him, Knowing God, one of the best books I've ever read. Packer is the same theologian who said the phrase, let go and let God, it's not a great phrase. It's not a biblical phrase. The better phrase is, trust God and get going. What assurance there is available for those in Christ that as we walk, we know it is God working and walking in us. So we're called to work it out because we can and he guarantees it. Um, But Paul won't even let us, leave us hanging there. He's now going to provide us in this one command. Here's three ways to do it. Not an exhaustive list, but three ways in his mind as he's writing to this church that you can work out your salvation. Let's read verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Working out your salvation. It will not isolate you from the culture. It will brighten your light within the culture. That the children of God are called to, quote, shine as lights in the world. There's a couple of assumptions there we have to talk about. Um, One, the world really is a dark place. And I think we can be fooled. In fact, Tom prayed about it, if you're listening closely. He prayed about the fact that, especially in an area like ours, we can tend to think, things don't look that bad. Everyone's doing pretty well around here. People seem to be kind of inherently good and kind of just enjoying everything, and they got the money, and they got the houses, and things seem pretty good around here. We can be so easily deceived into thinking that because we are products of our context of where we are in the moment. And with that, we decide, I mean, what kind of light are we shining? Nobody's looking at us anyway. What's the point of being bright? They seem like they're shining pretty well on their own. I referenced a book a couple weeks ago called The Insanity of God. And it spotlights Christians in, highlighted, uh, in highly persecuted regions around the world. And it tells, in that, one of the stories in that book is this couple that became believers in their home country that is largely Islamic. And in this country that they did not name, if you were caught sharing the gospel or worshiping, um, it's not um, a post on social media to make fun of you. It is thrown into prison. It is tortured. It is probably not getting out. They did not name the country, but my mind just went to Iran, something of that context, largely Islamic, closed to the gospel, to the point where this couple, every single morning they left each other, kissed each other, and, to- and reminded them this might be the last day they see each other. Think about that goodbye in the morning on the way to work. Well, this couple, the book says, was given an opportunity to move to the United States. And they did. But after an extended period of time, the wife began to plead with her husband, we need to go back. We need to return. And the husband looking at her like, are you nuts? Why? And she says this, it's a quote in the book, it's like there is a satanic lullaby playing here and the Christians are asleep. And I feel like I'm falling asleep. Please, let's go back. And they moved back. And this isn't about railing on America, man. We pray for our nation every single day here. We love that we have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This isn't about hating or loving. It's not about patriotism. It's a warning that church, if we're not careful, we're going to be lulled to sleep. And thinking like, it's not that bad. And then our light and our witness will dull because we think things are not that dark. And, and, and Paul is also not in favor of saying, church, you've got to get a bubble around yourselves and isolate yourselves from the culture, which has become a rising popular uh, thought amongst the church today that, hey, man, this culture is going, you know, in this direction. We just have to kind of hold rank here. That's also not what he's insinuating. Even in ancient, ancient Rome, which was deliberately persecuting against the church, against this, with these falsely based accusations, Paul is basically saying, what's the point of being a bright light if no one can see it? Surely, as a kid, you sang this song, and maybe you sing it with your kids today, this little light of mine. 
I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. The response to a dark world is not to be immersed in the world, and it's not to hide from the world. The way to preserve Christianity is to shine the light of Christ into a dark world. A set of beliefs, you see, that we live out. And you only shine by working out your salvation with fear and trembling individually and us together as a church. And it gives you three reasons to do it, three ways to do it. It's not, again, not an exhaustive list, but it's telling to us these are the first three things he's talking about. Number one, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This word choice indicates both the outer and inner versions of grumbling. The word grumbling being external dialogue we do with others, and then disputing being internal dialogue we do with God. And it's an attitude of complaining, an attitude of bitterness based upon circumstances that surround us or people that surround us that are not up to our ideals, and so we grumble and we complain. And by doing this, Paul is alluding to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 16. Do you remember this? After the Israelites were freed from slavery by the power and grace of God, they were on their way to the promised land, and it did not take long for the people to begin grumbling about their lack of food, complaining about how long this trip is going to take, grumbling about a desire for more water to the point where insanely, In Exodus, they start saying to each other, you know, remember that time we were slaves in Egypt? It was pretty good, huh? Like, at least we were eating and drinking when we wanted. And God tells Moses in Exodus 16, verse 12, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. You see, grumbling is not a form of praying. It's not a form of lament. It's a serious red flag in the life of any believer. It's not a minor blemish. We can overlook it and worry about these more serious sins. It's a big deal because it exposes what's true in our hearts. And to that, Paul says, work it out. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And in this way, Paul sees the church as the new exodus as people who have been freed from the bondage of slavery and on their way to the promised land, who've already been saved but have not yet arrived, do all things without grumbling. If we can be objective here, it just doesn't make sense to grumble as a believer. Of all the things you've been saved from, of all the things you've been saved into, to grumble about circumstances does not make sense. I'm not saying it's easy. In fact, this um, sparked a memory of mine uh, that I went back in my notes and found a devotion that I gave to the staff here at Grace Church in January of 2018. So over a year and a half ago, I shared, it was at the beginning of the year, and I, I remember sharing with them, I said, I'm not big on New Year's resolutions, but I do like seeing changes in the calendar just to do a self-diagnostic on my life, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And I confessed to the staff that I've been struggling with the sin of complaining. And it was especially dangerous because the vast majority of it was internal. Because I'm the pastor. I can't let that really get out. I can't really let them see that. 
but it was rampant in my own heart and mind. Just complaining, just bitter, just grumbling. And it was a joy killer. It watered down my passion for the Lord. It watered down my time in prayer and in the word. It watered down my vision for this church to make much for the glory of God. It was just this gray over all of it stemming from a lack of gratitude to to the Lord, a lack of gratitude for the people around me, feeling bad for myself and therefore justifying some sin. And I wanted them to know that. And my repentance of it and my desire for all of 2018, I said I want to strive towards gratitude because I'm not there right now. Church, be careful of the sin of grumbling. There's a reason Paul provides this as the first way to work out your salvation. It is sneaky dangerous. Grumbling is complaining to God. Lamenting to God is calling him to action. We are called to lament. Read the Psalms. It's not grumbling. There's a difference. And we need to understand that difference. And I think it's most dangerous when believers are around one another. Because we kind of allow it in one another. Because I'm a Christian and you're a Christian. It's not really going to affect us. It's safe grumbling space. And just warn you, don't make deals with grumbling. It's like trying to have a pet lion. It's going to kill you in the end. Number two, be blameless and innocent. So we can follow his progression of thought here. If we see Jesus high and lifted up, if we work our, out our salvation by not grumbling or disputing, it will prove us to be blameless and innocent in the midst of a dark and crooked world that we're trying to shine a light to. That the church, by their conduct, ought to be pure in the sight of others. Now, church's track record in this, not great. Not sure how many non-Christians we'd ask, hey, tell me about the church in your thoughts. That might be a scary question to ask. We have plenty of reasons to show that we have not been pure in our conduct. But just because the track record hasn't been great, it doesn't mean we don't have a calling and a responsibility to pursue that. And and blameless, he's not saying you got to be perfect and you got to pretend you're perfect because that's not going to happen. But he's following the progression of thought. If we go through our life, no matter what happens, without grumbling and without disputing, that will become noticeable to the world around us. That will make you stand out. That is what brightens your light. Again, especially in difficult circumstances, we don't enjoy them, we don't want them, we don't ask for them, but we have more of an opportunity to shine a light when things are going wrong for us than we do when things are going well. Where a lack of bitterness becomes evident. Uh, If you think about it, this is the testimony of Daniel in the Old Testament. Um, For the women here who are part of community Bible study, going through the book of Daniel, you are seeing this week after week. In Daniel, you have a follower of God that is in the ungodly Babylonian culture in exile. And he's actually working for the king of Babylon. He's in. He's very much in in the midst of this culture. And yet, he is remaining faithful to God through it all. Standing by his convictions, not isolated, but faithful. And when they try to derail him, and they try and frame him, and they try to discredit him and get him killed, it did not work. And yet, through that process, he's not complaining. He's not growing bitter. He's faithful. To the point where we read this in Daniel 6, 5. We shall not find any ground for complaint against this man, Daniel. 
You know what that is? That's blameless. That's a bright light. We are called to do likewise. And then number three, I'm just spending a minute here, hold fast to the word of life. Persevering, clinging to the truth of God's word. That when we believe and obey the word, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, and we submit to the word as the primary authority in our lives, the spirit testifies to our spirit of its reliability, and we cling to it. And this is how we persevere. This is how we hang on. This is how we shine our light. But we need to move on because I want to finish with three living examples that Paul gives us in this passage that the people of Philippi can follow. Work out your salvation. Here's how to do it. And here's a few people who are doing it well. Let's start with verse 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. First example, Paul gives himself. But he's actually going to talk more about the other two. He talks the least about himself here. But he's continuing to hammer this point home that we've seen every week in the series in the book of Philippians. That I hit on it, and then Pastor Jeff hit on it, and then I hit on it again last week. That his joy supersedes his circumstances. And even as he considers his imprisonment, he's not going to grumble. He's not going to give in. He's going to be glad and rejoice. He just gave you a two for one. And he will count the church at Philippi to be more significant than himself. He will look to their interests, even as he is being used as a sacrifice. Some people here think that Paul is hinting at the fact that while he hopes he's going to get out from prison, he understands he might not. Referring to himself as a sacrifice. But he's saying, you know what? That might happen. I might not make it out of here alive, but my joy is still full. And likewise, if I can do that without grumbling, and that will serve as a light to all who see, then likewise, church, you can be glad and rejoice with me in your lives. Second example, verses 19 to 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I will see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Timothy is the most, I'd say, closest linked ally to Paul in the New Testament. According to ages, they could be father, son. But notice he says that this isn't a father-son relationship. This is a son with a father, showing just the intergenerational impact of ministry. You don't have to just do ministry with people who are the same age of you. In fact, it's more evident to the world if you have people of different generations working together to accomplish the mission. And they traveled together on missionary journeys. Paul discipled him over the course of several years. And we have the two letters that Paul writes to Timothy in our Bible late in Paul's life while Timothy was in Ephesus as a pastor. But here, Paul is highlighting his character and his heart. 
to provide an example to the church at Philippi. The chief example we know is Jesus. We want to imitate Jesus, but we want to follow people who are following Jesus. That he provides us examples of people in our lives who encourage us to follow Jesus because we see they're doing it, we can do it. And he's telling them it's possible, it's actually really possible to count others more significant than yourselves. It's possible to work, look to the interests of others, to work out your salvation without grumbling. He says, look at Timothy. All right, God, this is the way God disciples us, by putting people like Timothy in our lives that we can emulate. And specifically, Paul says, there's no one like him. No one like him around here because he generally cares for you. He cares for the church beyond Rome. And he contrasts him with the others saying, quote, they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And it's a little obscure. Who's they? Who's he talking about? It's not immediately clear. Who's the they in this passage that are not counting others more significant than themselves? Most think it's the church leaders in Rome. That's an unhealthy church there. It's similar to uh, the ones in chapter 1 that Pastor Jeff preached on who were preaching out of their own motivation, almost trying to stick it to Paul, not helping him in prison. They wanted to further their own interests. It was a church that just said, it's all about us. We're just increasing grace church. Don't care about anything else. That would be a problem. That is what Paul is saying. That is what Timothy is not doing. There's no sense of rivalry in him. He cares about the church of Philippi. He desires to see them built up. He wants to go there to show them how to live out the gospel that he believes in. Faith that leads to works. Encouraging, building, expanding the kingdom of God. And for just a moment of application here for us, like a posture of a maturing believer is someone who has eyes on others around you. To almost have your head on a swivel to see how can I build up others? How can God use me to encourage others? I say that as often as I can. When you come to Grace Church, you come and you sit under the preaching of the word, and you, um, are, but you participate in the encouragement of one another. That oftentimes the more important part of a Sunday than a sermon is the dozens of small little conversations you're having with others. And for us to be walking up the sidewalk to these doors, just going, God, who can I encourage this morning? Can I encourage one person? Who can you put in my path that I can just speak some life into them and encourage them through your word? And then attached to that, if you notice that someone who maybe normally sits around you or you normally rub shoulders with on a Sunday morning just isn't around as much, we're a growing church. It's getting harder and harder to kind of keep track of everyone. And we just can't do it all as a staff that we want to empower the membership to have their eyes on one another to the point where if you notice if someone's just not around as much, that, that you are able and equipped to put it on your own shoulders to reach out to them and just say, hey, we miss you. Is everything okay? Maybe they'll go back like, yeah, everything's been okay. I've been down kids' worship for a month. Get off my back, all right? Like maybe that's the response, which is fine. Or it might be, you know what? Things are not okay. And it's hard for me to get out of bed on a Sunday morning. And thank you for reaching out to me. That that is not, we want to be doing that as a staff, but we want to be empowering a membership to do it to one another because it's going to be more effective that way to tell them you miss them and that you're concerned for them and you want to see them back. This is the posture of a believer. This is also the posture of a church as a whole. We don't just care about Grace Church. We don't just care about what's going on in these walls and our budget and our growth. We care about the well-being of our community. We 
care about the well-being of the state of the church in our country, in our area, in our world, that we want to sow into that financially and prayerfully and sending people whenever we can. Last example, Philippians 2, 25 to 30. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Very quickly, third example, Epaphroditus. Feels like I was pronouncing a dinosaur with my son when I'm trying to read his name. Like, it's the only time... He's mentioned in the Bible is in Philippians, and you don't see many parents naming their sons Epaphroditus. Maybe it makes a comeback, starting here. <laughs> but in a way, that's kind of the point. Paul, think about this, spends the most time in this letter talking about a person that is not very well known. The kingdom of God and the power of the church is being carried on the backs of men and women who nobody knows and no one's going to write about, but are faithfully playing their part. He's not well known to us in the Bible, but he's well known to the Lord, a child of the Most High God who was faithful and he played his part. Paul says he was a brother in the faith. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. And he's a messenger for the church of Philippi. Think about with me for a minute Grace Church, this little kingdom outpost that's been on this block in Ridgewood for the past 73 years. I've been a part of it in some capacity for the last 25 of them. And there are names, especially now as I'm pastor, that I'll hear of people who have been here, members of this church in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, long before I was here. Honestly, the people I recognize are usually the family members, parents and grandparents of some of our members here at Grace Church. But 95% of the members of this little outpost on this little block over the, cross, over the past 73 years, I don't know their names. I don't know what they did. I don't know what committees they served on or what teams they were with or how much money they gave. But I know as a pastor that we are all benefiting from the legacy of their faithfulness to carry the gospel forward and live it out, playing their part and if the Lord has not returned 73 years from now, and by God's grace, Grace Church is still here. Graham will be a greeter in the back, age 73. <laughs> the reality is, 73 years from now, there will be men, women, and children filling this place up and thanking God for us who gets rolled into the nameless generations who no one will remember, but they'll be thankful we played our part. And that's a good thing. And when you read between the lines of Epaphroditus' story, it's actually pretty fascinating. If there was a movie about Epaphroditus, I would go to the theater and watch it. Okay, he was a member at the Church of Philippi. And he had been designated as the person to bring a monetary gift to Paul. Because they heard he was in prison and in need. And we learn this in chapter 4. And the reason they felt burdened to do this is because, again, Roman prisons, they were not providing food to the prisoners. 
They did not provide clothing. They did not provide medical care. The churches in Rome are useless. They care only about themselves. They don't like Paul. So prisoners relied on other people to bring them money to provide for them in need. And so the church of Philippi, 800 miles away, send Epaphroditus on a trek from Philippi to Rome. It'd be like us giving you an envelope of money and saying, walk to Chicago. There's a guy in prison who needs some money. Good luck. No transportation, no Uber, no rest stops along the way. Valuable gift in his possession, and it's not a small undertaking. And beyond that, he gets so sick on the journey, he nearly dies. I'd watch this movie, I'm just saying. And the church of Philippi heard this, and they were rightly concerned about him, about whether this gift got there. If you ever send mail anymore, who does that? But if you send mail, and you're kind of itching, I want to hear from them that they got it. That's what they're waiting on. And Paul outlines in other letters that monetary gifts, when going from church to church, they should travel in groups. So you can kind of connect the dots here. A group sets out from Philippi. Epaphroditus gets really sick. A couple people go back to Philippi to say, hey, things are not going well but they don't know the end of that story. And so they're waiting on pins and needles to go, did this gift get there? How's our brother Epaphroditus? Did Paul get the gift? And that's the reason for this letter. The primary reason is to thank them, to say, I got the gift. And then when he got better, Epaphroditus, the group continues on the journey, they deliver it, and now Paul is saying, I want to send him back with a letter to you. Epaphroditus is probably like, come on, I just got here. Okay, but maybe not. He probably was just faithful about it. In fact, he says Epaphroditus is longing to see you again. He actually is a little homesick. So he's going back from Chicago to New York with this letter. And Paul just says, give honor to this man. Give honor to where honor is due. He is pouring himself out for the good of the kingdom. He is risking it all. And we should celebrate that kind of faithfulness wherever we see it. Honor him. Imitate him. He's not doing it for his own glory, but for the glory of God. So what is Christianity, after all? It's one command. Work out your salvation. Three ways. Do all things without grumbling. Be blameless before the world. Hold fast to the word. And three examples. Paul the apostle. Timothy the pastor. Epaphroditus the faithful member. This is how the church moves. Faith that leads to works, and God will be glorified. Let's pray.